Simon. So I am currently sitting surrounded by the pieces of my Halloween costume to be. Do you want to guess what it is? <laughs> it's, uh, well, I can see you and people listening to this can't. I'm going yes. to guess so that you're going you as two pieces of trash because you're okay. holding up two pieces of trash. Here's what I have. I have a whole cardboard box that fits over my whole entire head. Okay. I have um, pieces of colored foam and I have turquoise paint. What do you think I am? And a clue turquoise is paint. it's one of my favorite animated characters. Are you going as Princess Bubblegum? Close. Are you going as Lumpy Space Princess? Even closer. <laughs> you know. Through the you pool. know. I mean, the fact that we're know in what adventure I love. time canon is... <laughs> Are you oh, going as Finn the oh, Human? Oh, Beemo, how do you get... Oh, you're going as Beemo. <laughs> what do you think the box was, dum-dum? <laughs> Are you going to tape an egg to your stomach? Uh, that would be amazing. My plan is I'm going to tape my iPad to my stomach and then put different Beemo faces on it. So that I, so if anyone is listening to this and doesn't know who Beemo is, Beemo is a little animated game control character and Beemo's the best. But also, like, if you don't know who Bimo is, go and fucking watch Adventure Time. What's wrong with you? <laughs> uh, are you going to any Halloween parties and what are you going dressed as? Not that I know of yet. You're I, going dressed as Simon Dingle. <laughs> I mean, to be age, I've, I've sort of forgotten that Halloween is coming <laughs> until you what? mentioned it's it. It's the only important holiday of the year. <laughs> true, true. Um... What would I go dressed as? I did see uh, in one of the Telegram groups I belong to, and that makes it sound like they're many. They really aren't. Uh, somebody posted, like, it's a meme at the moment, you know, the, like, fake Halloween costume or whatever of a VC mm. bro. <laughs> and it's basically, <laughs> like, one of those um, one of those jackets with the sleeves off. And, oh, my God. <laughs> and, like... Cuffed pants with Bitcoin chinos. underneath. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was, and, I mean, and then some some really snappy content on the cover that I don't recall, but it was good. Uh, so good. A polo shirt under your blazer. Um, that is the most terrifying force in the universe today. I do love that as a costume idea. <laughs> if I was in the same town as you and going to the same party as you, I would consider going as the Earl of Lemon Grab just to be completely obtuse. That's a very good one. Um, and I think kind of feasible. You could just strap a duct tape a lemon onto your face. Done. Costume yeah. done. And also just screaming unacceptable at people is extremely my <laughs> shit. Uh, so Simon, talking about incredibly weird shit that um, I've been watching. Um, I did my homework and I watched Jim and Andy. Good God, Good. what the hell was that movie? What the hell? I've never been so confused, so angry, so full, so amazed. I, I was very full of feelings, <laughs> mostly confusion. <laughs> I want to hear all about them. So if anybody didn't hear the last episode of Take Back the Day, it's fine. I'm not going to swear at you again. Whatever. Don't listen to it. I don't care. But I challenged Sam to go and watch uh, Jim and Andy, which is a documentary. It's available on Netflix. I went and rewatched it because it's been a while. Um, and I feel like documentaries, well, I suppose this goes for content in general, but I was going to say I like books in that I often revisit documentaries and books and 
find that I have a completely different experience from them and get different things from them on my second or third pass through. Um, it mm. seems to be very like time and place dependent and situation, I guess, set and setting, <laughs> like what's happening mm. in my world and how I relate to the content, whatever it is. Um, so it was interesting to to rewatch it. And I also have thoughts, but I want to hear yours first. Well, I mean, it's an incredible documentary. It's Spike Jones, who's got to be one of the best, uh, I, which I didn't realize, who's got to be one of the best filmmakers, I think, um, of at least of the 20th century. Um, and basically it is about Jim Carrey's performance on in Man on the Moon. But I mean, I think the kind of, the the summary of it is Jim Carrey's thing where he says he feels like he didn't actually perform in that movie. He was just possessed by the ghost of, or the spirit of Andy Kaufman, uh, Andy Kaufman right? Um, and he then proceeds to do these incredibly strange things. Uh, but the, it's there's like these other layers because Andy Kaufman also had created this whole other character named Tony, um, and then that that guy shows up too. Anyway, it's layers and layers and layers of who's actually performing. I, so, okay, I have many thoughts. My first thought is I would have been very irritated <laughs> being on the set with Jim Carrey. Oh, yes. <laughs> and it did raise some really interesting questions for me about what we find acceptable in the name of creating cool art, right? But I do also think that it seems like Jim Carrey at least is being was being quite sincere in at least his experience of what was happening. So, I mean, maybe it was just deep method acting. Maybe he honestly felt like he was being possessed by the spirit of another person. He'd gone so deep in. Um, yeah, and that was interesting. I mean, as someone who, who tries to make art and does find that a lot of it is about putting yourself into kind of almost altered states of consciousness sometimes in order to be able to access something, um, it was interesting. I mean, but it, it is, you know, the, the character that he's accessing is a very, like a, a horrible person and someone that I, you know, I would find, um, yeah. Anyway, Tony so, so or, I, or Andy Kaufman? I think all of them. And I think that this is where the line's blurred is also like Jim, the character who is Jim Carrey is also very irritating, you know? Um, and I found that interesting as well was actually the parts of the movie that I connected with the most was when Jim Carrey was talking about being a kid who just realized he had this power, the superpower of making people laugh by being outrageous, acting outrageously. Um, and how the character of Jim Carrey became a persona and a character as well in his life. And I think that that sense of dissociation from the self, I thought was really interesting um, because I think all of us have versions of ourselves that are a performance version of ourselves. Um, and, mm. you know, specifically people who are artists, but I think all of us do. Um, and it's interesting to think about like where, where can that become really unhealthy, where it can start to look like, a disorder, a disordered behavior where you actually don't know who you are anymore outside of knowing that if you act in a certain outrageous way, you can get a response from people. Uh, anyway, it, 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 it was interesting. It, it made me feel a lot of things, not always positive things, but I think that that's, that was really interesting. What is it that you loved about it when you first watched it? And what was it like watching it again? Um, so... And this is interesting because this is one of the big thoughts I have about it. Whatever I originally thought watching it when I did years ago doesn't matter because I'm just going to make up an answer to that question now that kind of suits me. And that's yeah. one of my key takeaways is I think a lot of um, 
Jim Carrey's supposed wisdom is just retrofitting <laughs> mm. um, about what he was actually experiencing at the time. Because we, we all do that, right? We, we kind of fit the narrative to what we wanted the past to have meant. Um, because a story that we were being a petulant asshole is not a great one. So we tell a better story about what was actually going on. Mm. Um, and the truth lies somewhere in between or whatever. Um, mm. so, so, so a few things. The first half of the documentary um, is quite bewildering, as you alluded to, because you're just basically watching Jim Carrey being possessed by a demon, basically. And I haven't watched Man on the Moon. I didn't know anything about Andy Kaufman before I watched the documentary. He may or may not be an asshole. I don't know. He's one of those comedians from the past who was undoubtedly very funny, probably super mm. smart, pushed the bounds of comedy in a way that nobody had really before, but in some pretty problematic ways as well, like, you mm. know, wrestling women and <laughs> offering to pay women $1,000 to wrestle with him and saying some very controversial things, whatever. It was the 70s slash 80s. I'm not sure exactly. And, you know, a lot of people got away with a lot of things they probably shouldn't have and fine. Um, but then it transitions into the second half of the documentary, which is basically Jim Carrey waxing very lyrically about what it means to be himself after purporting to have been inhabited by somebody else's persona for so long. Mm. Um, and that leads into a lot of interesting kind of what it means to be you and what it means to pretend to be somebody else um, and and sort of some very deep questions about how we build up our own personalities and who we pretend mm. to be in the world, all of the stuff that you were alluding to. So that stuff's interesting, and I love that. I also love the insight that he gives of, like just basically his passion for what he does. So whether or not like, mm. you like Jim Carrey or whether or not you leave Jim and Andy thinking he's a complete a-hole, um, some of the takeaways of just him talking about his career are interesting. I love the story he tells about his dad, um, which TLDR, his dad was super funny, could probably have been a famous actor or at very least a stand-up comedian, um, but thought that that wasn't a viable career path and instead chose a job in accounting so he could support the family, do the right thing in inverted commas, um, and then was retrenched. And the mm -hmm. thing that that uh, Jim says about this is he realized that you can fail doing something you hate, so you may mm -hmm. as well do something you love. And I guess that was the line that I left, mm -hmm. left Jim and Andy with the first time I watched it. Um, the second time watching it now was going through the first half of the movie, being bewildered again and going, you know what, I think actually Jim Carrey was being an asshole. Like, I think yeah. he had gotten away with so much for so long that he just took it to the extreme on the set. Mm. And these poor professional adults, like the director of the movie, had to kind of put up with this petulant child mm. because they had no choice but to work with him. And if he really yeah. wanted to snap out of character, he would be able to. Um, yeah. But he was just doing whatever he felt like. Um, and that may or may not have produced a very good movie. It seems to have done well enough in the ratings. I still haven't watched it. Maybe I should. Mm. Um but what I really enjoyed in the second half, listening to him waxing lyrical about, you know, careers, et cetera, again, was he talks about how it's not just the persona you build up around yourself. It's who you train other people to expect you to be. Mm -hmm. um, and when you stop being that person and you go, you know what, actually, we're all full of shit and we're all pretending to be something we're not depending on the context. When you flip the script on people they really don't like it and they're going to call you back to be the thing that suits them. 
and then you're going to be faced with this decision to you know follow the thing that you think you should be doing versus what the world is telling you to do i like how yeah. they use the metaphor of like the truman show um mm. and how he talks about his life up until that point almost being like being on the truman show and then him realizing mm. that he could escape that he didn't have to be yeah. this person that he could decide yeah. who jim carrey was and reinvented and try things in a way he reminds me of uh, somebody i know who's you know, now known as Ninja from the Antwerp and a very questionable character. I haven't spoken to him for years, but I knew him in three of his prior personalities and they were all vastly different. <laughs> and it mm. kind of reminded me of Ninja, whose real name is Watkin, mm. and how he had reinvented himself and come up with these characters that would inhabit mm. him more than he would inhabit them. Um, mm. And mm. then kind of run with whatever was working which ended up being a very problematic character and then from my perspective but whatever it worked for him yeah um, i mean i mean to the point that like now you know he's been fairly credibly accused of some really horrific sexual assault stuff right and th i think that is an example of yeah and I, I think that that is an example of i mean what what i found most discomforting i think about the documentary but i mean it, 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 this is this is what i found found discomforting about jim carrey not about the documentary actually i'd, I'd like i think this is on that level not on the meta level was you know I just I think we the culture has moved on from accepting abusiveness in the name of you know making art although maybe apparently not because like apparently Jared Leto was super abusive on in every movie he's been on and he's still getting cast in like multi-million dollar Marvel movies so I don't know maybe not maybe we, we do still accept bullshit in the name of you know the great male creative artists it's always fucking dudes and they're always being just shit just horrible and we're like well obviously this is you know mad creative genius and I you know, just the older I get, absolutely the less patience I have for that narrative. Yeah. I also lose patience with the narrative that if you work in creative work in inverted commas, like if you're an actor or a director or a writer or a, a musician, um, that you're somehow doing something more noble and more special than the rest of society mm -hmm. and that that somehow entitles you to a set of behaviors that nobody else would get away with. Um, totally. And I have friends in the industry. Some of them aren't like that. Some of them are. I mean, we're all full of shit to some varying degree. But I have to bite my tongue often because they, you know, they're very dismissive of my work because, <laughs> you know, Simon, he left the creative field. And, he, and they have this idea that doing corporate work or doing, mm -hmm. you know, work at a company where you're making a widget or you're providing a service or, you know, just the things that make the wheels turn in the world, you know, that actually make the electricity you're consuming and the fucking food that you're eating, that somehow that is less valuable and less cool and that you've sold out if you're doing those things. When actually, mm -hmm. and I say this as somebody who has done many of these creative things, not as well, I'm not as famous, I haven't been successful in them, fine, but I have had a taste of it and... I did not feel like I was contributing very much to society, if I'm honest, creating mm -hmm. content that somebody was going to consume and forget about five minutes later. I also realized that the work you do in business, and a lot of that is the business around creative work as well, which I loved, is massively creative, right? And it's a mm -hmm. combination of not only being creative and having an outlet, but actually feeling like the things you are creating are contributing to somebody in a massively positive way. Now, I'm not suggesting that creative work doesn't contribute to society, et cetera. It, it absolutely does. I'm just, these were my reflections. Um, 
But well, you're right. I mean, <laughs> you don't yeah. get to walk into a boardroom. And some people have, let's be fair. Steve Jobs probably did. <laughs> but you don't get to walk into the boardroom and go, today my name is Edward and I'm a dick tool and I will punch you in the face and you will be okay with it because I'm the boss. Punch, punch. <laughs> like, no, you don't get to do that because yeah, you have yeah. to act like a fucking adult. Yeah. Mm. anyway yeah totally I, like yeah and absolutely i thought that all of those that was what was really interesting about the documentary was you know what do we accept in the name of of creativity what do we ex accept in the name of brilliance and all of these things i also want to pick up on something you were saying just now about how uh when we stop playing the roles that have been assigned to us uh other people can can find that very bewildering i think that's 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 a really poignant point um, I've been having a lot of conversations. This is a bit, a bit grim, but I'm of the age where a lot of my friends, their parents are dying or their first parent is dying, you know, and we've been, I've been having a lot of conversations with those friends because it is kind of this, you know, awful secret club that you realize you're a part of when, when one of your parents dies. Um, and how, what a lot of them are going through in the, in the wake of the, of the grief and, and a big loss in the family is that suddenly no one else in the family knows how to play their roles anymore. Um, because, you know, people, people behave unusually often, you know, when there's, when there's, when someone in that configuration of roles is gone suddenly. Um, it's been interesting to talk about people, how so many people have found that siblings have started fighting because all of a sudden the one who was always the responsible sibling has just decided they're not going to be anymore or some, you know, the one who was going to be the, the wild child is suddenly not going to be, um, and how destabilizing that is for everybody, um, I don't know. It's just an interesting, just just kind of picking up on that point that that you were making, because I, I think that happens to us all the time, um, where we we kind of get stuck in these prisons of our own making, um, where, and I guess of other people's expectations of us, right? Yeah, um, which is kind of integral to communication. Like like there was a study, and I'm always cautious of saying study because so many things like it's such an abused word, you know. The, it basically means nothing, <laughs> but but um, basically this study um, uh, uh, measured sort of the uh, dimensions of people's voice when they were speaking to somebody like pitch blah, 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 and came up with a pattern. And they found that mm -hmm. people have like a different voice. You might not be able to pick it up because the changes can be quite subtle, but intonation, accent, everybody would change according to who they were speaking to. And it would be the same yeah. for the same people. So, you know, like I have a Sam voice when I'm speaking to Sam and I have a Kenny ah. voice when I'm speaking to Kenny. And I have because, yeah. you know, that's what we are. We're animals mm -hmm. that are trying to communicate. And we learn from other people that, oh, like when I speak with this accent, this person like is slightly more familiar. <laughs> you know, I'm more familiar to them. Mm -hmm. I'm making myself better understood really? by adjusting my mannerisms in proportion to this other person and my intonation and maybe my accent. Yeah. And I feel like I do an exaggerated version of that, and other people have commented on it before, which is why I'm hyper aware of it. But um, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's that unusual though. But I think it's 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 voice, but it's it's behavior as well, right? Yeah, like yeah. I find the idea of personality tests really interesting because I know for myself that my personality is very my my personality is very dependent on my in different relationships, right? Like because I think you you define yourself 
in relationship to other people. So I have some friends where compared to them, I think of myself as kind of the lost corp, you know, and then I have other friends where I'm like, oh no, I am the hyper responsible type A. And I am more that it's not just a self-perception. It's that I, I actually behave more in a different way when that's the, the my role in that relationship, you know, like we're social creatures yeah. to the extent that I don't think we, we are anything in isolation. Like I'm not, I have no personality in isolation of other people. I, I my my personality even exists in contrast and in relationship with the other little apes that I I have in my in my life. You know, it's so weird. I love that though, and you you see it in the workplace. Like people rise to responsibility. You know, if you're told mm. you're a junior, you sit here with the other juniors and you do what you're told. Blah blah blah. Like people don't take initiative. Mm. Whatever. And I've seen time and time again, and there again <laughs> been studies about this. Studies <laughs> have shown um, that if studies. you take somebody in a very junior role and you elevate them very quickly, they almost always mm. rise to the occasion. And when you tell somebody you're the mm. boss, they mm. start acting like the boss. And actually, it turns out it's something anybody totally. can do, almost anybody. But yeah. Which is why these things that we think don't matter, like job titles, right? Job titles shouldn't fucking matter. It doesn't mean anything. But if you change someone's job title, it, it does change their behavior. Like slap a senior in front of their name, even if nothing else changes, it does make a difference, right? Because, you know, we're not rational creatures. We are these weird, fuzzy, fuzzy monkeys. Right. And I suppose then, you know, you get into the discussion around intrinsic motivation and how some people do mm. have a stronger, what would you call it, designation of who they are that comes from themselves or they think it comes from themselves and are mm. able to hold their own more in a situation where other people are trying to pull them in different ways, which mm. is interesting. Um, mm. So, yeah, man, Jim and Andy it got me thinking about a whole lot of things. It was a very interesting homework assignment. Thank you. <laughs> well, you gave me some homework. You asked me to write for an hour. I did. And how did it go? It went amazingly well. I wrote something you may have read already, which was a letter to shareholders of my company. I I was first like, I, I've done this, you know, freeform writing where you sit down and you just start writing and you don't know about what. And it's an exercise that, you know, if you go to a yeah. writing class, they'll make you do this. And I've always loved it. It made so famous started... by Julia Cameron, and she calls them morning pages. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't actually know about that. I think I heard about it from, and we're still the, not going to get her name right, Natalie Gold, whatever, who <laughs> the writing down the bones. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah. so I sat down going, maybe I'll do that. And then I was like, you know what? I actually really need to um, write this missive or something <laughs> for our shareholders. And also what I liked about it was it's something for you as well because you are one of the shareholders. So I was like, okay, well, yeah. this kills two birds with one stone. <laughs> it's perhaps a little bit of a cheat if that's what Sam – but I try to make it a little bit more creative than usual and and I spent an hour doing yeah. it. And uh, it's cool because I feel like I do a lot of writing. We all do just because we're human beings and we've decided that that's how bulk of our communication works. Um, we don't do a mm -hmm. lot of conscious writing. So, mm -hmm. you know, I don't – think deeply about the pros of every email i'm answering i hope um but when you sit down and you go you know what i'm actually going to pay attention not to this thing that's happening mm -hmm. but you know the thing that makes the thing um that was cool so i did my homework those are my thoughts about it um 
No, I love that. I, I read this wonderful essay collection recently called These Precious Days by Anne Patchett, who's one of my favorite novelists. And she has, she. I think there's going to be a really interesting genre that becomes clear a couple of years from now of pandemic writing, particularly lockdown writing, like essayists who wrote interesting essays about the experience of lockdown that we all went through but all experienced in such different ways. Um, and she has one of my favorite lockdown essays, which is about how, so Anne Patchett is, you know, a very famous writer. Um, she also owns a bookshop in Nashville, I think. Um, and through that process, kind of became friends with Tom Hanks, but who ended up voicing, doing the audiobook for one of her novels. As one does, but just happen she upon has this Tom Hanks. And- as one does. This is the main reason to own a bookshop. <laughs> um, is, and apparently he is delightful. But actually the essay is about how she developed this friendship with his assistant over email. Just because in her style of writing emails, she's quite open. Like she, she errs on trying to be quite witty and, and throw in these little details about her life. And she ended up having this years-long exchange back and forth with Tom Hanks's assistant um, where they'd only actually ever met each other in person once for about 10 minutes but then through the course of communicating about these business projects ended up feeling like they knew each other quite well and then just before the pandemic uh, this woman who was in her 60s I think was diagnosed with a, a, a quite aggressive form of cancer and Anne Patchett's husband happens to be a in that kind of cancer and was running a, a trial at his university. So she contacted this woman and said, you know what, come and stay in my house for a couple of weeks and, and you know, you can, we can get you into this trial. Um, and it was this a bit of a weird thing when they were driving to the airport and realized, you know, she's just invited this person to come stay with her that she's never, she doesn't really know. She just has the sense of intimacy, but it's just emails, you know. And then, of course, like a week after she arrived, everyone got locked in their homes. And then this woman ended up, this complete stranger, essentially, ended up living with her for over a year. And they became incredibly good friends. But it's this wonderful essay about how we communicate and how we how we can actually, we can get to know other human beings through just business emails, you know, coordinating times and places of podcast recordings or, I mean, audiobook recordings. It's kind of this really lovely little narrative about how emails matter writing matters even if it's the type of writing we don't think of as in that way we think of it as functional but actually parts of ourselves creep in or, or we can choose to put parts of our real honest vulnerable selves in in anything yeah. and how much of these things are hmm. just serendipitous um so you've also been i feel like you know living kind of very far away from you and getting the odd update etc like you've been doing a lot of <laughs> hiking trips this year i mean I, I know of two at least <laughs> uh i have tried to do a lot more hiking this year than last year and i still don't feel like it's enough um i would go hiking every day if i could it is the closest thing I feel to that I have in my life to a sense of of religious awe, you know, is when I'm I'm like in the woods. Um, and I think my best hiking trip so far this year was I went with my oldest friend. We went hiking for a few days in Wales in this valley. Um, one of the things I have noticed, and it's it's taken me a while to understand what it was, but I, I think I've kind of developed the words for it, is one of the things I've most missed since moving to the UK is a sense of, of wildness, of nature. Like nature feels very depleted here. It feels, things feel very cultivated and and farmy um and 
and I, you know, I kind of, I, I didn't really have language for this. I, I thought for a while, you know, things are just different to South Africa. It's just different natures. I'm just not plugged. I'm not tuned into it. I'm not experiencing it as being in the wild in the same way that I did back home. But actually, I've, I've been reading more and more about this, and it, what I'm what I'm perceiving is is really just very accurate. So there've been the study. There, there have been studies. Studies have been done uh, about how the UK is one of the most nature depleted places in the world. Um, if if you take it along a number of dimensions, so like species that existed 50 years ago versus species that exist today, mm. uh, pure quantity of 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 animals, or it's a whole whole bunch of dimensions. But it is. It's just one of the most stripped back, bare like. Nat- naturally bare and drained landscapes it's just been cultivated for so long um and i so i read this incredible book a couple of weeks ago called wilding which is about an experiment to rewild this farm in the middle of the countryside in england and it's really interesting because of how much pushback they got from all of their neighbors so it was a very unproductive farm um so have we spoken about clarkson's farm the tv show ever I'm not sure if we have, but multiple people told me about it, and I have mixed feelings about Jeremy Clarkson as a person that we don't need to get into. But I went and watched it and thoroughly enjoyed it for what it is. Um, it's actually it's actually amazing. Same. And what and wished I had spent lockdown learning how to farm. <laughs> I know. So I mean, it's the weirdest recommendation for that I give to people because I unambiguously hate Jeremy Clarkson, but I love this TV show partly because you just watch him being humiliated and made fun of. <laughs> But also it it is this incredible story about just how fucked farming is in the 21st century. Like it just makes no economic sense in the UK anymore. Um, It doesn't make sense on a small scale anymore. It only, it works as these huge like corporatized things. And one of the, one of the insights from that, that weird show is how the extent to which British farmers, actually they're only making money because of government uh, funding. You know, uh, it's not profitable. Farming is not profitable unless you do it on these crazy scales, on a crazy scale. Anyway, so these farmers had realized had had this realization that actually they were just losing money every single year, and it was just getting harder and harder um, to produce food, which is weird because this is like the th- a thing humans have done for a long time. It's the only reason any of us are here is that we got really good at producing food, but we just can't really in a, in a profitable way in the UK at least anymore. So they decided, you know what? What if we just we just give it all back to nature? Um, and they're they're independently wealthy people, so they didn't need the money really. Um, and they go through this this process of trying to reintroduce uh, natural herbivores to big quote unquote natural herbivores, herbivores that mimic the kind of herbivores that existed wild in the UK, you know, hundreds of years ago. Of course, with the funny the funny things that you can't actually reintroduce those species because they're now extinct in the UK, and the UK is a funny island, which means it can't like repopulate. Um, so they tried to find equivalents. So, for example, they, you can't release wild boar into the UK; it's illegal. The wild boar are also terrifying. So they found these really sturdy pigs that they let go in and scruffle around, and because they're all really important parts of of the ecosystem, and they tried to rebuild an ecosystem essentially. The funny thing is, firstly, all the neighborhood farmers kept writing these strongly worded letters um, complaining about how they were just letting the land go. It was an eyesore. Wouldn't someone please do something about it? What a waste. Um, and then these to these quite specific complaints, and one of the funniest ones for me is there are no predators in the UK, in the UK anymore. So while like wild wolves, for example, have their populations have started recovering in parts of Europe thanks to a whole bunch of rewilding projects. 
um, obviously wolf, there are no wolves left in the UK. We killed the last ones, I think in like the 1600s or something. Um, and they can't come from anywhere now if there is a, a habitat for them. So they had these wild, wild and quote unquote again, these ponies living on the, on the land because they used to, they always were ponies um, in the in the habitats. And, you know, they're, they're important to, I think they, they eat a certain type of bush, which makes it possible for trees to grow. I don't remember the exact details. But then, of course, they ended up with an abundance of ponies and they needed to shoot a bunch of, bunch of ponies. Um, and then, you know, very responsibly, I feel, tried to sell the pony meat for eating. It's good eating. And again, uproar. <laughs> and it was just this really interesting book about how impossible it is to really, like, you can't go back. You can't, you can't rewind the clock backwards and undo habitat destruction. But you can kind of think about recreating habitats that kind of function it's crazy because i find the british countryside massively appealing and sort of parts of what the british considered to be wild which is far from it where i come from um and it has it has a certain appeal but it's not the same appeal as like you know when i was in australia and found the jamison valley which put a pin in it we need to talk about that at some point because that was that was mind-blowing um mm. but yeah yeah you know like an open field with one or two trees left standing on it is considered pretty wild in in britain and it's also it's sad that like you know this whole effort to rewild i think you called it um these areas mm has been a failure when you look at other parts of the world like there's that amazing documentary about the reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone Park I think it was in the states mm-hmm. and how it changed mm-hmm. the environment to the extent that it changed the course of the rivers because it brought back yeah. other species um like beavers for example and um species mm-hmm. of plants showed up that hadn't been in that area for you know I don't know what it was hundreds of years let's call it um so it is possible it's just sad that you get to a state mm. Um, like the British countryside where there's just no going back anymore. And it reminds me of being mm. in the Mediterranean in Greece, for example, and like having one of the best holidays I've ever had, but spending a lot of time in the ocean, which was amazing because it's just a giant swimming pool, but it is a giant swimming b- pool because it's literally had the living shit fished out of it. There's no like, like mm. swimming underwater there. There's no seaweed. You don't see a single fish like mm. around the Cyclades islands. There's just, Blue yeah. turquoise water, great if you're looking for a big swimming pool, but nothing wild mm. left and like very little chance of, of anything returning to the area, mm. I suppose, not being a, a marine biologist myself. And if you'd grown up there, you would never know. You would never notice that it was so dead. Um, you would just think, oh, you know, that's what the ocean is. And so it's also interesting because one of the big problems that the farm ran into is that they have to allow dog walkers on the farm. And they they installed a type of cattle that's like a much older breed of cattle because you can't, again, you can't put actual bison, but it's the closest thing. Um, and those ca- those cows have not been bred to be as docile as most contemporary cows are. So dog walkers who let their dogs off the lead, the dogs will go and attack these cows and like, these cows will fight back. And they've gotten into a lot of trouble from dog walkers as well, saying they don't feel safe. And this is another thing is this expectation of safety from the wilderness. And as people who grew up in Cape Town, you know, where one of the weird things about living in Cape Town is that you have baboons breaking into your home, you know, which leads to 
this really weird conflict between our, our desire to feel safe and protected and the fact that we're kind of encroaching in their, their territory, you know? Yeah, and we, we also know, because studies have shown, that um, you know, spending, <laughs> spending time in the wild is massively beneficial, if not like a requirement, a necessity for, for human beings. Um, mm. And you, know, you and I have spent a lot of time in a place where we're spoiled for that, like Cape Town. You can literally leave your mm. door from anywhere in the city and within max 10, 15 minutes, you can be in the wild, you know, <laughs> with massive trees over you yeah. and bird life, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and mm. it certainly feels like something I can't live without. But then, you know, for example, the first time I went to the States, I, I met a woman in her 30s who had never left New York City. Um, and she was, sitting there next, mm. she was sitting next to me on a plane to Washington, D.C., where she was going for an audition. And it was the first time she had ever left New York City in her entire life. Mm. And you're like, she seemed to be fine. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, we've certainly redefined what it means to be a human being in an environment in places like the UK and, and London. So what is, what yeah. is hiking in Wales yeah. like? Is it walking past uh, green, green pastures and the odd rock and some pretty pristine coastline? Or, I mean, that's how I imagine it. Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, one of the reason I, I liked Wales is that it's the closest to wild space I've found in the UK so far. Um, it, so we walked through the Wye Valley. It's this very old, very forested uh, area with just like beautiful, very old trees, I think is the main thing. Um, it's, you know, it's one of the few places where really old forests still exist, um, you know, and, and kind of the, all the complexity where you feel like you're walking through a mind. Um, we've spoken before about how, how crazy I am about trees, <laughs> how they're, they're basically sentient. Um, yeah, it's lovely, but I mean, there's no, there's no animals there. I mean, there, there's small ones, but not ones you see, uh, you, you definitely don't have to worry about anything attacking you. But I mean, we did just wild camp, which was really lovely was very magical felt like they were fairies <laughs> and that's that's cool because that's something that you know where where i am in south africa wild camping isn't allowed in very many places i mean you can you can you know you can travel out and do it but and i have done it in places you're not allowed to do it maybe um tell me about the, tell me about the australian valley that you just mentioned that you said we should put a put in oh well so it was magical i went to australia for the first time this year and, uh, was and I survived. <laughs> pleasantly surprised by by so much, and and I mean, like I knew conceptually that Australia was vast, um, but you don't realize exactly how vast <laughs> until you're there speaking to people. Um, you know, when they're in Sydney and Perth is like a couple of time zones away and an eight-hour flight. You know, um, it's a massive, massive place, um, and so the Blue Mountains are a you know, an area about an hour's drive away from Sydney um, where we spent a, a couple of days. And, you know, conceptually, I knew that Australia wasn't just cities in the outback and that there were rainforests up in Darwin and that Tasmania looks pretty kiff and they, you know, make a lot of wine, whatever. Um, but I knew nothing about the Blue Mountains and spending time there and seeing the Jamison Valley, which is an incredible you know, ecosystem, still very wild, rainforesty, um, lots of animals. Although disturbingly in Australia, the other thing I knew nothing about is that most of the wildlife you see will be dead lying next to a highway. <laughs> I must have mm. seen a thousand wombats, not a single live one. <laughs> um, 
and you know there are parts of Australia where you literally cannot drive unless you have what they call rebars on your car because you you will hit a kangaroo and it will not go well for you unless your car is equipped with what we call bull bars. Fuck, and they're frightening creatures. (laughs) They are terrifying. Yeah, I don't know how people think kangaroos are cute. (laughs) Look, uh, you know, oh, wombats are cute. I learned the difference between the two, Um, but uh, we spent time in a small place called. And then Australians are going to laugh at me if I get this wrong. I think it was Katoomba, which is right on the edge of the Jamison Valley in the Blue Mountains. Very quaint little kind of, I don't know if it's even a town, village. <laughs> um, but with some pretty great pubs and restaurants and lots of friendly Australians and tourists. Um, and a place I could definitely return to. And and it's one of those places I feel like I would like to go to without a return ticket. And just go... Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna hike this valley until I'm tired of it and eat at every one of these mm-hmm. restaurants every other day, and uh, and just hang out. So again, yeah, and this is this is why we love traveling, right? I I had all of these mm-hmm. preconceived notions about Australia, and I'd heard lots of things, especially from South Africans who'd moved there, had absolutely no idea a how expensive, mm-hmm. b how rad, c how um, what a monoculture it is, for example. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think the the other big takeaway for me, thinking about what wildness means in the UK, having moved to the UK, is just this incredible appreciation for how much harder it is to try to rebuild an ecosystem once it's gone than it is to try to preserve an existing ecosystem. Like, they're such complicated things. Um, yeah, and I mean, South Africa and, and, and Africa in general is one of the, the few places in the world where there's still... You know, we're still rich in, in, in wild space, but less so every day. And it just, you know, made me want to go and be one of those people that chains myself to to coal power plants and prevents them from, from being used, you know. Or throw tomato soup at a painting or I just... Yeah, I'm fucking all for tomato soup. <laughs> How do you feel about potatoes? Runny potatoes, wasn't that the latest uh, one being thrown at a Monet? Oh, I didn't hear about that one. I did hear about some people who, which I think is a good target, who were spray painting a the head offices of a PR company that works for the oil industry. It's interesting, though, because this whole like phenomenon of throwing runny food at paintings. Um, <laughs> on the one hand, I'm like, you're not doing yourself any favors here because the people who hated you still hate you. And now a lot of the people who liked you hate you too. So, <laughs> But if the goal is raising awareness then like 10 out of 10 guys (laughs) awareness raised it's such a hard one right yeah yeah it's such a hard one right because there are some people who talk about um activism in you know where they say you know if they just if they just were activists more quietly you know if they were just activists more politely then we would definitely listen but i mean that's just patently untrue i think there's also a message there's this hypothetical ideal way that people would like activists to complain about things you know, politely that wouldn't piss people off. But what is that way, you know? So is there an implicit thing there? And maybe I'm just being very stupid here. Is this obvious to everybody else that their message is, why do you care so much about this stupid painting from the 15th century when we literally won't have a world 20 years from now? Or is it as simple as we want attention so we can shout at you about something and like, you know, pretending to destroy one of your favorite artworks is maybe a way to do that or is it more are they more implicitly going look at what you care about society 
I don't know. I haven't engaged much with these protesters. <laughs> I saw an yeah, interview with one know. of them I mean, and it, she said lots of things I agree with about the climate and almost nothing that I agreed with about Picasso and fine. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I have listened to nothing from those particular protesters. I find it, 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 the different kind of subcultures of, of activism interesting in different ways. So, I mean, I think there's kind of a different strategy amongst people who slash SUV SUV tires. That's also a very big, very unpopular thing in the UK at the moment. And that is more akin, I think, to uh, how people used to throw red paint on fur coats. Right. It's that they just want it to become really inconvenient to own those things, you know, because if you, you know when you buy an SUV, there's a non-zero chance your tires are going to get slashed. You know, you're just going to pause before you buy an SUV. Oh, so that's yeah. more of like a quite specific, pragmatic... I, I think so. I think it would it would be a, a factor, wouldn't it? Like in the same way that you don't see many people walking around in fur coats anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that consciousness was raised... With SUVs, I feel like not enough tires are probably, and I don't know the facts. I don't know. I don't know the numbers, but I'm guessing like tires. <laughs> Where's your slashed. studies, Simon? <laughs> but I would be like, they're gonna get tired of slashing tires at some points, and I'll probably be okay. Maybe. I mean, like, I think, I think the fundamental thing where I, I have, I'm entirely uh, in support of XR and all these people is the fundamental thing of this is a fucking emergency, and we are not treating it as an emergency in any way. Fucking a. On board, like I said, I have yeah. mixed feelings because yeah. I agree with with one hundred percent of what these people are saying about the urgency of getting rid of fossil fuels, yeah. about climate change in general. I am I am in the same church as them on all of those topics. Yeah. I just don't know how I feel about throwing tomato soup at a Picasso painting to get the message across. I don't know if that's the right, but like you know, what is the right angle? I don't know because clearly nothing else is working and nobody's listening. So hey, let's throw some exactly. food at some paintings. Um, Although uh, things are working, and this is the thing I I, I, I like to keep coming back to. Like Kurzweil had this great video the other day that I've, I sent to all of my particularly nihilistic Zuma friends. Um, which is a reminder of all the progress that we have made, you know, and uh, the fact that the economics on dirty energy have tipped mostly, you know, it's just not, it's not profitable to build coal fired power yeah, plants. Someone should tell yet. South Africa. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it, I think stuff is working, uh, you know, like there has been a consciousness shift. Um, I think we're very close to reaching a tipping point on a lot of things. Um, I've just been listening to too many scientists I hold in high regard saying it's not like we need to start stopping now. It's like we should have stopped five years ago. Mm. And if we don't stop this Mm. instant, like this time Mm. for real, guys, it's too late. Mm. And Mm. perhaps perhaps they're being slightly hysterical, but these aren't people prone to hysteria. These are very rational human beings who are looking at the science here, who know what's happening and what's going to happen over the next 30 years um, and see this yeah, as I think that's 100% a right, but Yeah, absolutely. The thing is, it's not binary, though. It's not like we either do this or we don't, right? Like we, the climate has already changed. We have already changed mm. the climate. We have locked ourselves into some horrific consequences of that. The question is how much it's going to change, right? And so it's not like either we do something or we don't flip a switch. It's we have to fight over every 0.1 of a degree of warming. So because every 0.1 of a degree translates to millions of people suffering, you know, uh, bluntly um, in a number of ways, not to mention other consequences for other creatures. And so we have to fight over every single 0.1 of a degree. 
which so, means that you know it's not like it's it, there's no point at which it's too late basically i feel like we've arrived at a theme in this year episode sammy mm. like whether mm. you're jim carrey trying to be jim carrey again or whether you're trying to restore the British countryside or reverse climate change as far as possible. Like there's there's a certain degree of accepting the reality for what it is now. And mm. it's like, a, what's, the, what's the famous prayer? <laughs> grant me God, the, grant me the serenity. Yeah, to serenity the to accept the things change. I can't change. It's the what the strength, courage, the courage, the to courage change the to change I the can. things I can, yeah. and the wisdom to know the difference, which basically negates the previous two because nobody's smart enough to know what can be changed and what can't. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's it, right? Like we have to act, even we have to sit, we have to sit in our grief um, and mourn the things that have gone, and yet still try to save the things that we can. It just reminded me of another thing Jim Carrey said. So last quote from Jim and Andy, because I literally can only remember two with any with any kind of fidelity. Um, but he talks <laughs> about how our decisions make us. He's like, mm -hmm. you know, decisions are strange things. We don't really know where they come from. Like the, mm. he also talks about how he's not a big fan of free will, and he doesn't think it mm. exists. Which you know. I find it's like one of those very rhetorical or dichotomous discussions to have because it's like, fine, it doesn't exist, but this doesn't help me, you know. It it, it helps mm. me in how I think about blame, perhaps, or how I think about punishment, mm. but it doesn't really help me change anything about the operating system for my own life. But be that as it may, mm. he talks about where decisions come from, and he's like, there's mm. something about appreciating the fact that you didn't actually choose this, you know. Like something mm -hmm. caused you to go, I'm going to have a sip of this water now, or I'm not going to buy that house. or And it feels like, mm -hmm. you know, there's this pilot in the ship that told it to bank left. But actually, there's more at play here. And the decision kind mm -hmm. of just is a thing that happened. But then that decision kind of turns you into something else, you know? So the, th the mm -hmm. thing that you think is controlling the decision isn't, but is being changed by the decision you see but i fucking whatever blah blah fish paste forget i said anything <laughs> i love it i love it simon i have a piece of homework for you on this theme well it's which your is turn. i want you to go <laughs> i want you to go and read some poems by mary oliver who is the best poet uh who the best poet for just feeling awe at things that we cannot control okay. and things that are not human yeah so I want you to go read a couple, find one that you like, and then the next time we talk, you can read it to me. Find a Mary Oliver poem, read it to Sam. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'm My favorite is her most famous, which is Wild Geese, but actually all of them are amazing. Well, and you can find many you shouldn't of them have told online. me that. Oh, it's fine. It's good that you told me. But start, for that. start with that one. It is, it is really magical. I will yeah. do that. How are we going to do this? Are we going to take turns setting challenges? Because I thought that was how it worked. Or, or, or should I have a challenge for you as well? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, You're we'll saying take this turns. like this. I will rules. find a Mary Oliver poem. <laughs> okay. Cool. And uh, and then nice. we'll discuss it in the next show. And then it's your turn to, to set a challenge. And then a, I will set, set a challenge, challenge for you. I like it. I like it. I like it. And what I like about this as well is there's some commitment to doing another show before we are both too old. Before we're dead. I mean, look at before it. Before I'm it's too been old to weeks. speak. <laughs> 
So it's been only two weeks since we last spoke. I'm very proud of us. Dude, let's just, you know, this is a good cadence. It's a better cadence than every other year. I mean, when do we start doing this silliness? Uh, 2000, I don't know, 12? I don't know. And since then, we've know. managed I mean, to record when, like 12 episodes. When? <laughs> I mean, when, how many years have we actually been having these conversations just as just as buddies? I don't oh, know, I even mean, longer. It's blending into infinity. <laughs> but, um, I know. <laughs> but yeah, the talking on the internet and recording a thing, yeah. Well, I've got to I've got to elicit the the Sam Simon voice from you so that it, I can share it with the rest of the world. It's a very no. good voice. <laughs> yeah, we don't need a reason for doing this. We didn't make the decision, yeah. but now the decision is making no. us. And now we have to preserve it because it exists. <laughs> I'm going to go and think about the parts of myself that need rewilding, and maybe go for a hike. Ah, uh, yes, please do it. Do it for me. I fucking miss it. <laughs> I am going to come back to the UK eventually, hopefully sooner rather than later. And I think you and I going for a walk, it doesn't have to be an extensive hike, but I want to experience some of what you've seen for myself. I feel like that could be a good activity. I mean, I deliberately chose to live on the edge of Epping Forest so we can go for a nice long run and look at some of the, the fa- some of the fallow deer, Deal. the closest thing to nature. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. I'm into it. Dealio. Thank you, Sam. I love you. All right, buddy. I love your face. Bye. Bye.